Let me pray. God, I pray that as we look at your scriptures, that you would open up our hearts to receive from your spirit, to receive the person of Jesus, to grow more intimate with you, O God. Lord, I pray that you would empower the preaching of your word, that it would not be by might or by power, but by your spirit, O God. And Lord, I pray that anybody here that has never called upon your name, that today would be the day that they call upon the name of Jesus for their salvation. Lord, I pray for anybody here who is just stuck in a pit, that they would find hope through the gospel of Jesus. Lord, I pray for anybody here who has been walking with you a long time, Lord, that you would encourage them and fuel them to run the race. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so last week we looked at the beginning of what is called the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15 and how they met as a church to decide not just what's important, but what is most important. And this is a continuation of that conference that we're going to be looking at this morning, but they had already started to settle on what was most important and at least had a general consensus with where we left the passage in verse 21 last week. And I think that this week's passage is actually a lot more personal and begins to hit closer to home because it picks up on that idea of keeping the main thing the main thing, but it asks the tangible questions of how do you know what the main thing is? And maybe more importantly, or at least as important, are we willing to allow things to get in the middle of us and the main thing once you're able to determine what that main thing actually is? So how do you know? I mean, there's a lot of main things out there that Christians and non-Christians alike give their lives to. It, this isn't just a Christian thing where people are looking for the main thing. If you remember the movie City Slickers, right? You got three men that are in the middle of a middle-aged crisis, and they're going out to find themselves, and they find old Curly, and he says, there's only one thing necessary. And he holds up his finger to Billy Crystal, and he's like, good, this is why I came on this journey. What is it? And then he dies before he says what the one thing was. And then they spend the rest of their life looking for the answer to that question. What is this main thing? And how do you arrive at the content of what that main thing actually is? And then what are you willing to do to keep the main thing the main thing? Most of us actually know a whole lot more than we actually know. So knowing the main thing and having the discipline to just key in on the main thing at the expense of other things that may in fact be good is something deeper than how do we know. One is an epistemological question, the other one is a matter of orthopraxy, and we're going to explain that in a little bit. And this brings to mind the tension that I've felt in my spirit for a little bit. If, if you don't understand what I'm talking about when I get into this, please just give me a moment and trust that the passage will kind of bring this together. Um, but it, it has to do with regards to biblical interpretation uh, and preaching and I want to express it briefly because I think that this passage really highlights this tension that's been in my spirit. And that's this tension between Bible centrality and gospel centrality. You hear the terms gospel centrality a lot lately. It's a, it's a buzzword that's being thrown around in churches. So much so that I fear that a term that was actually a very good and useful term is starting to lose some of its saltiness. So 
Bible centrality, bibliocentrality, what, what this means, what this looks like. This is how I got educated. This is how I learned the Bible. This was the schooling that I went to when I went to Bible college and to seminary. It means knowing your Bibles and being willing to use the understanding of that Bible as your foundation for all things in practice and all matters of life. It's the um, Reformation principle, sola scriptura. We're going to be looking at a series on the solas of the Reformation in the fall, because if you didn't know this, um, October 31st, is going to be the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther nailing the, 500, uh, the 95 theses on the Wittenberg door. And if you don't know what that means, that's something that um, geeks like me are really excited about. And I wish I could be in Germany to celebrate the 500th birthday of it. But we're going to celebrate it here with a month and a half long series and then a big old Reformation party. And I can't wait. But sola scriptura, that's bibliocentrality. And, and it has tremendous value, but left alone, it also has tremendous shortcomings such as legalism, proof texting, arriving at theologies do not reflect the heart and the character of God, fractioning over secondary doctrines, pride, not understanding the big picture of God's word and making the redemptive work of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to either be something that's secondary or something that's only entry level to come into the door of knowing Jesus, but then is discarded once you get in into the door that presents problems. Gospel centrality basically says that from cover to cover, the Bible tells one story. The Bible tells the narrative of God's perfect creation, man's rebellion and fall, God's redemption and ultimate restoration of what was marred by sin back in the garden. Gospel centrality seeks to make Jesus as the hero of every single narrative. It seeks to correct some of the errors of bibliocentrality by remembering that the authors wrote with a distinct purpose in mind of expressing God's glory found in redemption and in the person of God's Son, Jesus Christ. And I've long been in the gospel-centric camp. If you said under my teaching... For any period of time, you hear that term probably almost every single sermon, but I've seen some shortcomings that have alarmed me, and this passage highlights some of it, the biggest of which being a generation of Christians and pastors that know the story of redemption quite well, but are quite biblically illiterate. And this has been highlighted during times where I've called somebody to get their counsel on issues, uh, and they say things like, so what does the gospel have to say about that? Have you been gospeling yourself lately? My, my all-time favorite is when people just turn gospel into a verb, and they're like, what is the church doing to gospel about that? And are they gospeling one another? And anything that generically even smells like Christian truth is called gospel truth. And it's led to this watering down of a term that people actually, as we celebrate the Reformation coming up in 500 years, people gave their lives to defend the distinction of just one term in the gospel. That's how important it is that we get this right. We don't just throw the gospel around to be this ubiquitous catch-all junk drawer phrase for anything that smells remotely Christian. The gospel is distinct, and it's unique, and it should be upheld in its distinction. So a conviction that's been on my heart for a while is it's, it's really not an either or an or. It's 
Most pendulum swings throughout the church take the good over here and they swing so far over here that they forget that the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. We have to be a biblically literate people, folks, who understand our Bibles and understand how to walk through our Bibles, but we also have to be able to look at our Bibles, the redemptive storyline that's dripping from cover to cover and be able to explain to everybody, as it says in John chapter 1, about how the whole thing was about the person of Jesus Christ. So the reason I bring up some nerdy hermeneutics that I'm working through is because it's exactly the point that this council is being held for. They're asking questions like, how do we take these pagan Gentiles and bring them into the church in a way that's biblically faithful? How do we be faithful to the gospel and avoid adding anything to the truth of the gospel and the grace of the gospel, uphold sola gratia by grace alone in a way where we don't add in anything to their conversion or their sanctification how do we get this right? How does this help us keep the main thing the main thing? So with that in mind, look with me starting in verse 22. It says, Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders and the whole church to, to, to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers. So it seemed good to the apostles and to the whole church. I, I absolutely love that phrase. Let me read that again and let it sink in as I said it. It seemed good to the apostles, elders, and the whole church. The entire church were in agreement and they were in lockstep in unity. I don't know what your experience has been in churches, but let me just tell you that this is rare. And if it's not rare, I'd even say miraculous. In a few moments, I'm going to walk through the passage and describe some of the tense things that they were discussing, that they were in lockstep in unity about here. And these words are the kind of things that at any moment you could expect somebody to say, I'm taking my ball and going home. That's it. Uh, we just don't agree. We're going to split over this. I've seen people fail to be able to come to agreement over far smaller issues than the ones that they're discussing in this passage. But here they're dealing with some deeply sensitive issues, some of the most profoundly important issues of, whole t of all time. And the whole church leadership and the congregation with them were in lockstep on these issues. This is why we call this series the Acts of the Holy Spirit, because it takes an act of the Holy Spirit to accomplish this. I think you could see a picture here of something that every pastor in every church that actually cares about the gospel and the mission of the gospel has asked themselves at one time or another. Like, what would it look like if we were able to clearly define the mission? And not just define it, but define it in a way where every person who calls this church our home can actually articulate it. What would it look like if we all agreed on the mission? When I say agreed upon, I don't mean give mental assent to words that are written across the scrolling page of a website. The great theologian Jonathan Edwards often wrote on topics saying that knowing and agreeing with something in the Bible are profoundly different from what we mean by knowing and agreeing 
with something. His thesis was that if we take what the Bible has to say about knowing seriously, that we cannot claim to know something or agree with it unless we acknowledge it and we're willing to actually put it into action. Just mere assent of something being truth is not the same as the biblical understanding of knowing something. So when I ask, what does it mean if we all agreed upon and knew the mission? I mean it in an Edwardsian sense. I mean it when we look at it and say, yes, this is an agreed upon mission, and me as a member of this church family, I'm willing to give my entire life to this. What would it look like if we held the gospel higher than our own personal preferences? What would it look like to mobilize an army like that that was so deeply in agreement and with attention to the things that matter the most? It would look a lot like this passage. It, it, the body of Christ would actually look like what the term body of Christ is intended to mean, which is a manifestation of Jesus here on earth. I mean, think just for a moment the things that the church splits over and divides over most often. And it's kind of ironic because the passage ends with a church split between Paul and Barnabas. Uh, I went through some different um, stats and stuff that I read and found the five most common things that churches split over. Churches can become a cult of personality around the pastor, meaning that whatever, however the pastor goes, that's how the health of the church goes. And I just want to say that's why I uphold plurality because I believe that we are supposed to be replaceable, dispensable parts. And if I leave here and get hit by a bus today, that the only thing that we would miss is, I don't know, whatever you'd have to do after I get hit by a bus. Um, <clears throat> that was kind of morbid. Um, second thing that they split on most often is churches with no clear form of church government. So it's kind of let like the inmates run the asylum sort of deal. Uh, the third one is that churches don't have a plan for raising up new leaders. So people become so connected to a specific leader or style of leadership that they're not being groomed for the fact that that leader is not going to last forever. And they're going to, that's what you see over and over in the book of Kings and the book of Judges, that they had one flavor of leader. They dialed in on that leader, but then once that leader was gone, so went the spiritual vitality of the people Disagreement over finances is the fourth, and then disagreement over the usages of buildings. And I found like 25 of these in certain polls that I read. I just gave, like these five are nuts to me, but man, waiting, if you got down to like 11 or 14, I saw a church that split over what kind of green bean casserole should be served. I mean, it's just absolute insanity. And these weren't like hyperbolic. These were people like writing in saying, Tell us the silly reasons that led to church splits. And the guy that wrote it said, that one was easy to fix. Just don't serve green beans because they're from the devil. And man, do I agree with that. I hate green beans. So what did, what did Paul and Barnabas split over? You, you see it in verses 36 through 41. And we'll come back and circle around in a moment. But it says, after some of these days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see where they are. So they're not just concerned with evangelism. There's discipleship going on of those who they preach the word of Jesus to. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take them the one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them for the work. So 
Barnabas wants to bring his cousin John Mark. John Mark bailed on them. Paul's saying, no, this guy's disqualified. Barnabas wants to bring them anyway. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers in the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia and strengthened the other churches. We're going to get into the end of that passage more next week. But basically what caused them to split was a disagreement, one that was not of gospel importance. It shows how merciful God is and the fact that he still uses this. These guys actually both went on to really significant ministries after this display of fleshiness here at the end of chapter 15, which should be pretty humbling when you think about it because it really shows just how little we're needed in the process and how much it's God that just superintends the work of planting churches. But consider for a moment the impact of disunity in the church and a church split. I actually have a slide up here because these are a lot of words and I couldn't have come up with this. These are from Tom Rainier. He gave the top 10 impacts from a church split from not coming in agreement, like it says in verse 22. Number one was, a church that is split is likely to die. Certainly, many of the congregations will hang on tenaciously, but over the course of few or many years, the cancer of the split eats away at the health of the church body I have conducted many church autopsies. The beginning of the death of these churches often took place at the point of the split. Number two is the negative community impact of the church split is great and enduring. I've often done interviews with community members where the church split is located. The merchants and residents have said, oh, that's the church that fought all the time until it split. That's not a reputation that you want in case you don't see where this is going. Number three, the majority of church splits focus on the pastor. I have seen some church splits where the pastor is clearly the problem. I have seen others where the pastor is the convenient and most visible scapegoat. Number four, church splits typically originate from power groups within the church. Number five, some church members have actually been a part of several church splits. In other words, they've sown the seeds of dissension in different congregations where they have been members. Number six, church splits are typically preceded by inactive church members becoming active church members. Number seven, church splits are most likely to occur in country club churches. A country club church is a metaphor for a church where many of the members have a sense of entitlement, of an attitude of service. They paid their dues to get their way Number eight, some churches still split over doctrinal issues. It's crazy that that's that far down the list. Some churches split over financial issues, number nine. And he concluded with this, there are no winners in church splits. Those who leave typically leave hurt and angry. Those who stay become a part of a church that usually begins a steady, if not steep, rate of decline. And the reputation of the church and the community is damaged greatly, sometimes permanently. Let's look for a moment on the other side at the things that these guys did agree upon in the Jerusalem Council. When I said that they agreed on big things, keep in mind the ten things that I just read, and then keep in mind the things that these guys agreed upon, and it's not like they had a bunch of commentaries to go to or years of dead theologians to go back to read. They didn't even have the New Testament yet. These guys had the Old Testament and walking around with Jesus for three years to help them arrive at agreement on these things. And most importantly, the Holy Spirit. They agreed on what it should look like for Gentiles to come into the church. They agreed what it would look like to see a bunch of pagans 
come out of pagan culture. And go figure, man, because that's still one that the church just profoundly drops the ball on so often. I can't tell you how many times that we preach this message of sanctification before justification. Tell the pagan to become unpaganized so that they might be able to come into the church and become Christianized. And that's just a bunch of hogwash. You preach the gospel You allow Jesus to come in and invade that person's life. And you allow the Holy Spirit to make the change after they come to the person of Christ. You cannot preach justification or sanctification before justification. It does not make sense. But we live in a culture where that's the predominant gospel that's preached in most churches. Number three is they agreed on what the worldly culture should reject and what things to make secondary issues for the sake of the gospel. Again, go figure. They nailed this. 2,000 years later, there's secondary issues that are still splitting churches today. What tempo of music should we play? Should it be hymns or contemporary? Should the pastor be wearing flip-flops or not even care and just kick them off? I mean, why do people care? If you're an adult man and you're looking at me and you care what I look like, you should examine what brought you up to this point in your life. And you, like, seriously, go think through your Christianity and do over. Number four, they agreed on who should go and share this agreed upon message. And number five, they agreed that it was okay that their worship services were about to get a whole lot messier. And they weren't about to have anything neat and pristine. These were people that were actually going to pagan temples, doing pagan stuff. The only thing they'd done is believe in Jesus and become justified. Now they're a part of the church with these highly sanctified church members. People are kind of bugging out, saying our churches kind of look like a pagan ritual. And they're saying, hey, where's Jesus at in all this? I know that it's getting messy, but keep Jesus at the forefront of all of this. So how do you get a whole church united on the same mission? Well, these guys put a lot of attention to making sure that they got the gospel correct. They put a lot of emphasis, I mean a lot of emphasis, on keeping this whole thing about Jesus. That sounds so simple, right? Just keep the whole thing about Jesus? I mean, we could all say that, right? We could all, I could get you guys to repeat it. Just keep the whole thing about Jesus. If it's so simple, then why do churches continue to fall apart? Because they don't know how to keep the whole thing about Jesus. I assure you that living out God's mission with an intentionality and keeping it all about Jesus is exceedingly rare, and it takes quite a bit of discipline. Even the greatest churches of all time. Do you know what you see if you go and tour Spurgeon's church? In England, you see a museum with seven people in it. One of the greatest churches in the history of redemptive history. And there's nobody there anymore. You couldn't find standing room even at just the prayer meeting. Think about that, the prayer meeting. Y'all ever been to a prayer meeting? There's usually the same seven people there. You couldn't even find standing room at the prayer meeting of that church. And... Now it is a museum because they couldn't just simply keep it all about Jesus. They found other priorities. But back to the question, how do you actually get the whole church united on the same mission that you see in this passage? These guys had strong leaders who actually led. And they didn't lead by consensus. They didn't lead by pulse taking. They didn't say, hey, if I put myself out there, is it going to hurt if I get rejected again? They looked at the Bible and they said, what does Jesus have to say about these things? And they strongly led by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, his word, 
and with an intuitiveness. They were willing to teach right doctrine and refute wrong belief. And they saw the overall mission of building the kingdom that was going on as bigger than building the individual church. And guys, that's a big one. Just like Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then all of these things shall be added unto you. He didn't say, seek your pastor's idolatrous desires and desire to be on the radio and be known past his congregation and make sure that everybody says, is happy and says yes to everything and that we never pull the plug on any sacred cows in the church and then all these things shall be added unto you. That's not the way the Sermon on the Mount goes. These guys were kingdom builders, not just looking to build a church. They wanted to build a kingdom. If you want to see the church all on mission together, you have to preach kingdom building. And again, they stayed centered on the gospel and refused to allow anything to become bigger than Jesus. So with that in mind, what sent them on mission? Look at verses 22 at the end and verse 23. It says, And they sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading another men and brothers, with the following letter, The brothers, both the apostles and elders, and the brothers who are, in, who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, Cilicia, greetings. So they sent Paul and Barsabbas. That seems to be really clear. That seems to be a common theme in the book of Acts. Whenever you see Paul's name, you could just write sent on mission next to it. But check it out. It wasn't just Paul. The passage says that they also had Silas. Then it goes on to say that they had other leading men. And then it refers to the whole church. And it's critical that you mention this because it is so easy to read the book of Acts as if it's the story of the exploits of the Apostle Paul or the Apostle Peter. And to read it like it's a superhero novel about these two super apostles. And if you read it that way, you're likely to take it about as seriously as you would walking out of the new Marvel superhero movie. Seriously, if you read the book of Acts in that way, it's like super mission of super Paul, and you're about as compelled to feel led to live on mission as feeling led to be the man of steel walking out of Superman. The whole church is called to live on mission in this passage. Mission is not something for the paid staff. It's not a program. It's not an event that you invite people to. I mean, just look at the clear reading of this passage. Mission meant that they did not anticipate people to come to them. Mission meant that they devoted their lives to going to the people, and it was something the whole church owned, not just the select few. And as they prepared to be sent on their way, you see that they not only own the, the fact that mission matters, you see that content of the message was important. We just stopped with verse 23, look at verse 24. Since you have heard, we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words and settling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you, our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you see that in verses 23 and 24. It can't just be about mission, because that can really lead to the watering down of content. If you only preach mission but do not preach content to the message, you will have a watered down gospel. But it can't just be about content, because content without mission leads to dead orthodoxy, and we don't need more dead 
orthodoxy, folks. It's both. It's about accepting the calling that we're called to live as missionaries, but we're also called to get the content of the message correct. You get that much just from reading the Great Commission. The Great Commission gives a go at the beginning of it. So you have the mission part, and then you have the general call that we're all expected to obey, but it also says to teach all that I've commanded you. That's the content part of the passage. As we're going, we're supposed to be teaching, and as we're teaching, we're studying the Word in order to present it accurately. We have to be a biblically literate people, folks. I mean, it's just been driven, driving me nuts, and that's why like, I'm not trying to dog on gospel centrality. I, I, I'm so grateful for it. But I've heard so much just touchy-feely gospel language that I want people to just be able to say, hey, what does Philippians chapter 1 say about this? You seem to really be struggling. What does Ephesians chapter 2 say about this? People that are biblically literate enough to be able to walk somebody through the living and active word of God that's sharper than any two-edged sword. That's the, sharp, that's the teaching content part of the message. As we're going, we're teaching. As we're teaching, we're studying and becoming a biblically literate people, which brings me back to what I said in the intro, that it can't just be about gospeling one another. I fear that the church is in danger of a season of biblical illiteracy, folks. And we have to take that very seriously. Knowing our Bibles, not knowing our Bibles is what led to the dark ages. It's why Luther said that we don't just need a reformation, but the church should be sempre reformanda ecclesia. The church should always be reforming itself as we seek to just stand firm on knowing the scriptures. We have to be a biblically literate people. And then you see the content of the message that they use. They said it's unsettling that the people have gotten the gospel wrong. They saw that people were getting the gospel wrong and it mattered to them profoundly. It mattered enough to them that they sent some of their best and their brightest. It says we sent you Paul and Barnabas. And then in verse 26 it says they even risked their lives that mattered so much. And they never lost focus of the fact that it's all for Jesus so with this group of people that come right together to rightly proclaim the gospel, the gospel rightly proclaimed should be a message of liberation, not a message of bondage. And it'll take about five minutes to unpack this, and then we'll close. Just look at the words that are used to describe the false gospel that was preached. It says in verse 10 that they were placing a yoke around people that they were unable to bear. It says, let not these new believers be troubled who turn to God in verse 19. The false gospel is labeled as troubling again, which is the opposite of liberating in verse 24. The false gospel is called unsettling in verse 24. The false gospel is called something that lays a burden on these new believers in verse 28. The gospel must be a message of liberation or it's not the gospel. And this is why we don't just throw out gospel centrality and why gospel centrality is so critical because sometimes bibliocentric people preach a message of truth but they forget to preach a message of biblical liberation through the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the gospel, I am no longer a slave. In the gospel, I am called a free man. In the gospel, I am no longer dead. In the gospel, I am called alive in Christ Jesus. In the gospel, I am no longer enslaved. In the gospel, I am now enslaved righteousness in Christ. I am justified. I am more than a conqueror. And you can continue to go and go and go, and that's just Ephesians chapter 1 and 2. We're going to be doing a series on that starting next week, which I'm pretty stoked about. But look at the fruit 
of receiving the gospel, the true gospel of liberation. Look with me, starting at verses 31, uh, 30 through 35. It says, So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch and have gathered, gathered the congregation together. They delivered the letter. When they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers. Doesn't just the language of this just smell so different than the language it was just used and what I was just reading? They're, so they're encouraging, they're strengthening with many words. And after they had spent some time, they sent off by peace the brothers of those who were with them. And Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of God with many others also. So in verse 31, a fruit of the liberation of preaching the true gospel is they rejoiced. They rejoiced because of its encouragement in verse 31. Again in verse 32, they were encouraged. In verse 32, they were strengthened. In verse 33, there was peace. It's amazing when you see the proclamation of the true and the false side by side, how different the fruit is of the true gospel of liberation versus the gospel of bondage, of works. So it brings about the question, are you living in the gospel of peace or are you living in the gospel of bondage? What would the fruit of your life say about that? Like seriously, if you asked somebody, not yourself, so that you can't lie, if you asked somebody, look at my life and examine it, does my life look like there's liberation and peace, or does my life look like it's ensnared and there is bondage, what would they say, and what does the terminology in this passage say? This group of missionaries was sent out to see people have the opportunity to embrace God without any obstructions. But to be a group of missionaries who are sent out to be able to teach others how to embrace God without any obstructions, we need to know what it means to come to Him unhindered. The term to Him unhindered has become quite the buzzword, but it's biblical and it's used right here in this passage. And my last point is that they didn't just call Him to a gospel that was accurate and a gospel that was liberating, but they called Him to a gospel that was counter-cultural. Look at verses 28 and 29. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay no greater burden than these requirements that you abstain to what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. Farewell. So the goal was to call them to stand out from their communities and run countercultural because of their faith in the gospel. They weren't just trying to put a bunch of rules on the people. The rules that were given were being given for a bigger purpose than being good rule keepers. They were given to raise up a people who know what it means to embrace the good news of Jesus and run counterculturally with the joy of Jesus. Guys, these things, you know, maybe we don't strangle things. Like it says, maybe that's not your issue. Um, maybe you're not going and sacrificing a couple of steaks to some idols when you leave here. Maybe that's not your issue. But this also talks about rampant sexual immorality talks about just general idolatry. This is still relevant in our culture, and it is calling people, saying, hey, this gospel that you've received, it should be calling you to just swim upstream and to be living in such a way where people look at your life, and as Jeff Vanderstelt has said, living in such a way that it demands a gospel explanation, that there is no other explanation that could possibly give an account for the life that you have and the life that you are living and the life that we are living corporately as the church of Jesus Christ. And I want to point this out that, man, living countercultural gospel is not saying write down a checklist and be good little rule keepers, boys and girls. There was so much joy 
and living the countercultural gospel. It's not like they were saying, man, I just need to grit my teeth and abstain from sexual immorality because they wrote this letter, so now I guess I have to. It says they rejoiced. There was peace. This wasn't a message of moral behaviorism. This is a message of joy. This is not, I can't do these things that used to bring me happiness anymore. This is, I don't have to be chained to the things that keep the people around me enslaved and ensnared any longer. And they call them pleasure even though I'm not. I know that they're not. I get to be free. I can know true pleasure that can only be found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I don't run countercultural so that I can gain anybody's approval. I run countercultural because I stand here as a man who's already approved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's why I have such joy, because I'm not trying to earn it. Really, your opinion of it doesn't give it to me either. It doesn't vary when I walk out these doors, because Jesus doesn't vary, and it's upon that rock in which we stand. So a few application questions as we close to combine the big thoughts of this passage. To be a group of missionaries sent out with a common message, there should be a common unity like there is in this passage. Are you somebody who fights for unity or tends towards divisiveness? And that, that's an easy one. I mean, and that's not one where you just say, ah, oh, unity, because you know it's the right answer. Just, just look at the tape. Look at the tail of the tape. Look at the track record. Are you somebody that fights for unity or easily pushes towards divisiveness? Number two is, do you believe that all of us who are called to Christ are called to live as a missionary people? And do you really believe that? I could preach that until I'm blue in the face. But unless you believe it, that when you leave these doors... That's when the mission of God begins. It doesn't begin between 10 and 11.20 on Sunday mornings, but we are called to leave here as a missionary people. Then it doesn't matter if I preach it till I'm blue in the face. Number three, does your life bear witness to how you would answer that question? What small steps can you take in that direction? Maybe inviting somebody out to church or having somebody over to your community group or having a barbecue and having some of your Christian friends and and just getting to know your neighbors and loving them for who they are, knowing how you could pray for them, knowing how you could be a witness of Jesus to them. Have you been believing a gospel of liberation or a gospel of bondage? And keep in mind the set of fruits that we showed you that come along with each and the last is the gospel called you to live a life that's countercultural. And do you see that counterculturalism is not a, I have to get rid of these things because the Bible tells me so, but I get to be rid of these things and be free in Jesus. God, thank you for the freedom that is ours through your good news. We love you. We proclaim that freedom until the day that you return and we taste it ultimately. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm-hmm. <clears throat>